This is an Ion Annapolis bonus podcast. There are some vague words in this world, and the word humanity for me is one of them. And um, I was snooping around on the internet, which always can be dangerous. And I found the definition for humanities as the studies about human culture, such as literature, philosophy, and history, um, which also seemed to be pretty broad to me. So I wanted to dig a little bit deeper, which led me to Maryland Humanities, which is at the website mdhumanities.org. And they deal in those things. And the person that probably helped me out here is the executive director, who is Lindsay Baker, and who is on the phone with us today. How are you today, Lindsay? I'm well. How are you? Good. Well, I'll tell you, let's get it out there. I mean, how do you, as the leader of Maryland Humanities, define humanities? I mean, is that, a, is that definition, the study about human culture, literature, philosophy, and history, pretty much on track? Sure, I would say it's on track. Um, I, I think, like you said, humanities is one of those words that we may hear, but we're like, what does that actually mean? Um, I will say the jury is still out on my family understanding what the word humanities means and also on <laughs> on times. Um, but for, for me, I think about the humanities as um, these disciplines that really give context to our understanding of our own lives, of lives that are different from our own, um, and give us a better empathy um, for people that, that we encounter or that we learn about or that, you know, we meet on the streets. So I think of the humanities, I know many people think of, um, you know, history and English as those degrees that never, uh, you know, get you anywhere. But as someone with two history degrees, I would refute that point. Um, and I would say that it's, it's actually really crucial to understanding and giving context to our world um, and to our own lives. Okay, fair enough. And I mean, you know, so it's really the human part of humanities that you see that brings it right in there together. And I've scoured your website. Again, that's mdhumanities.org. And, you know, the programs that you guys have are, you know, pretty, pretty impressive. And you guys are part of a grant-making organization, right? And then part of an organization mm-hmm. that actually does the work. Correct. So we both, um, uh, it's, it's called re-grants in some worlds, but uh, we both give out money in the, in the form of grants and, and through that, we have uh, the ability to support programming throughout the state that is done by other organizations. So that's wonderful because, of course, the work of 20 different organizations throughout the state of Maryland is going to be different and unique and wonderful in ways that we wouldn't be able to do on our own. And then we have programs that we run ourselves. And so most times people know one or two of our programs. It's actually pretty rare that you'll find someone that's not on staff or a longtime supporter that knows just the breadth of the programming that we do. Many people um, that are in schools have heard of uh, One Maryland, One Book, um, which is a statewide reading program, or they've heard of uh, Maryland History Day, which I probably would be in trouble, but I always compare it to a science fair, but for history. Okay. The people that you provide grants to. And I mean, I'm down here in Anne Arundel County. I know you guys are based in Baltimore. You're probably based someplace else right now at this point because of mm-hmm. COVID. But um, I, I know we've got you know some wonderful, what I would say, humanity type organizations. And I know that you've coughed up some money to them. Uh, Banneker Douglas Museum, Maryland Hall for the Creative Arts, which I think dropped the Creative Arts end of that. It's just called Maryland Hall at this point. Um, but there's just so many small little entities around the state that 
really just dig into the breadth and the depth of what we do have culturally here in Maryland. Uh, you look on the eastern shore, I mean, you've got uh, the whole Harriet Tubman scene that's out there. You've got Frederick Douglass's birthplace here. Birthplace? He was born on the eastern shore, but he had a house here in Annapolis. Um, mm-hmm. And it's you know it's amazing when you dig deep into it. And you guys seem to be the type of organization that exposes it. I mean, it's I, I know I always hear about you know the different grants that you're giving out to different organizations. Where do you get the money? I mean, are you a, you're not a state organization, are you? That's a good question. No, we are not a state organization. We are a separate five hundred one c three, so we're a separate nonprofit. Um, we do receive state funding, and we also receive federal funding. We receive some county funding. Um, our, I think our biggest county funding comes from Baltimore County. Um, and so the money that we use, and this is really uh, in some way in the weeds, but I love it. It's where I thrive. Is uh, the money that we receive and then give back out as grants is usually from the state currently. Um, we did, however, receive over uh, $500,000 in CARES Act money, which we re-granted to um, over 100 organizations in Maryland, and that was federal money because it was CARES Act. Oh, wow. So you could, you were able to, to get a hold of some CARES money and then regrant that out to do, okay, so that's so there may be an organization that did not want to go through the hassle or did not perhaps did not qualify, or I, I don't know whether they probably have to qualify, but they just, you know, did, for whatever reason, didn't apply for it or wasn't granted mm-hmm. it, that they're able to get a little piece of that from you guys. Yeah, I, I think the operational budget limit for applicants for that was 300000 So we were really looking at smaller organizations that maybe didn't have the capacity to apply for a federal grant. Um, and we weren't unique in, in providing this. There are other, you know, organizations that, that re-granted CARES Act money, but I'm really proud. It happened before I arrived. I'm really proud of the staff for what they did because, um, they turned around a little over, um, $5,000 grants to over a hundred organizations. And I, I can say if you're from a large organization or a large company, $5,000 doesn't sound like much. Um, but I ran a um, small museum in Laurel, Maryland for almost 10 years, and our annual budget was about $100,000 a year. So $5,000 is not insignificant with that type of budget. Well, that's I, I was involved with the Great Give here in Anne Arundel County for several years when it was active and going on through the Community Foundation of Anne Arundel County. And one thing that, you know, part of my job on that program was to go out to these nonprofits and really sort of get them up on like social media and figure out how to ask for money and and use social media to create awareness of your of your programs and there's so many that do such great work such little tiny you know they, I've got a little tiny sliver of humanity that I want to turn around and and focus on but they just don't have the oomph to get it maybe it might be the staff it may not be the time because it's all volunteer and they're not paying anybody there's any number of different reasons and that is like you said is such a godsend. I mean, for the Baltimore Museum of Art, no, it's, you know, $5,000 is nice. But certainly if you get a, uh, as you said, a small museum in uh, in Laurel with a, with a budget of $100,000, that's 5%. That's awesome. Hey, okay. question for you. How much of a whammy did COVID throw your way? Well, all of our in-person programs had to either stop completely or had to be put online, just like everybody else. And so uh, what that meant for us in real time was that our Maryland History Day competition 
which is the statewide competition um, for all of our History Day contestants that make it to that level, had to pivot to virtual, um, and it happens uh, at the beginning of May. So that was a major pivot, and I would say that from what I understand, the staff did a fantastic job at pivoting um, for that. But overall, it's just meant rethinking everything. Um, and I have tried tried to encourage my staff um, to show ourselves grace and show one another grace in this time that a lot of miscommunications can happen, that programs can get stopped halfway through because Zoom you know, completely fails. Um, and that's tough. That's tough with an organization that's used to doing really good work um, to get used to knowing that there are factors outside our control. Um, and so that's been a pivot in and of itself um, uh, culturally that I've been trying to trying to make is it is okay if not everything's perfect um, because in my world, who knows when my four-year-old will come running in the room with a Band-Aid on her nose and jump on my Zoom call. And that's not quite the picture that I would want to put forward um, in any other context. Exactly. Well, I don't think you're you're alone there. I mean, I think I'm, I'm waiting for this whole COVID to be done and watch the uh, outtakes of all the Zoom calls across the nation <laughs> with naked spouses walking in the background like a, you know, a cat walking across the keyboard or whatever it may be. I think it'll be an hysterical sort of uh, Alan Funt moment with, uh, I'll date myself there, with uh, Candid Cam. Mm-hmm. And I guess you guys have all learned how to become very proficient with either Zoom or Meet or Teams or whatever the latest video conferencing is there. Yes, for sure. And and it's been good. I mean, there have been some positives. We had an author event um, with a Swedish author, and we were able to have uh, over a thousand people attend um, from, I think, three different continents. So it's not all like everyone else is is finding with this this switch. It's not all negative. Um, if if you want to look for the positives, you will be able to find them. Although this is a deeply difficult time, and really, you know, a time where we all just wish we could feel safe. Um, but we're trying to look for the positives where we can. It's funny you mentioned that. I've talked to so many people that have come up with a similar thing like that. I know the Annapolis Maritime Museum does a Thursday night lecture series, and it's pretty much all related to the Bay and history of the Bay and everything else. They said, when we can do it in person, we have about 125 people in the big room. But when we did the first one last week, we had like 912 people from all across the globe. (laughs) Maryland Hall did a a live music school with uh, Paul Reed Smith. And two years ago, when they had, I think it was 45 students that spent a week there doing it, and they were able to throw it online and everything else this year during COVID. And they had like 900 and some odd students that that did it again from all over the world. So you're absolutely right. And what it does is it it expands your reach because, you know, who knows whether uh, that person in Nebraska or Montana or something like that, just may, you know, maybe they were born in Maryland and they just want to check in and see what's happening. And that makes all the sense in the world. Yep, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you find people attending that never would have been able to under other circumstances. You mentioned that you you were fairly new. I can't remember exactly what you said. So you, you're fairly new to Maryland Humanities? Yes, I started in August. So I just hit the five months of pandemic leadership. Really bad timing on your part. <laughs> All perfect timing. It depends on how you look at it, right? <laughs> That's true. Well, what, what, is, what is your background? I mean, you said you were at a museum in Laurel? Yeah. Um, so I come from the museum field. I was the executive director of the Laurel Historical Society for, I think, like nine and a half years. And then I became the executive director of Patap, which is a heritage tourism 
um, organization uh, that has a focus on the environment as well as history and recreation. So that was really interesting. I love that. Um, and then I moved on to Maryland Humanities. But before joining Maryland Humanities as staff, I was a grantee. I was a partner on One Maryland, One Book. I was a judge for Maryland History Day. I worked with museums on Main Street um, as a consultant and as a partner. So I really was very aware of Maryland Humanities, and I was a huge fan of, of their work. Um, and I, I say that, but I, I truly mean it. I would send their executive director, Phoebe, before me emails and just tell her how appreciative I was that the organization even existed in Maryland. So it's really wonderful um, position to step into, uh, even though, you know, it's, it's got its own unique challenges on a good day, but in the middle of a pandemic, even more so, but it's something that I've really enjoyed and I'm really happy to be um, able to do. Well, everyone uh, certainly sound very qualified for it, and it's always good when you've got somebody that's got the passion for the organization that's coming into it as opposed to having to learn it on the job, if you will. You'd mentioned you guys as when you were at other places were a partner, and I noticed that's on the website a little bit. Now, what's the difference between like a partner and a grantee? Wow, there's a million-dollar question. Um uh, Well, in my mind, and I think different Maryland community staff might – uh, answer this differently. When I was a grantee, I filled out the grant application and I received money, right? Um, but when I was a partner, um, for example, with museums on Main Street, um, I was working with them in the context of bringing a, um, a sites exhibit. So it's a, an exhibit created for small museums. Now, ironically, the Laurel Museum was too small to actually hold that exhibit, but they brought it to Montpelier Mansion, um, which is also located in Laurel, and we partnered with them um, in the context of developing programming and working with Montpelier as they created that exhibit. So the partnership, the partner side of things is really different depending on which program the partner is with. But for example, with One Maryland, One Book, many of our partners are libraries, and they um, are the ones who actually hold the programming and hold the book discussions and the speakers around the One Maryland, One Book program. Now, you've mentioned One Maryland, One Book. Is that your largest, your signature program, or do you not have one? Or <laughs> You're trying to now, get me in trouble. See, I'm, um, I'm asking um, you to play favorites here. Yeah, I'm not, I can't do it. Um uh, I would say that One Maryland, One Book is our signature program if you ask a library. I would say that Maryland History Day would be our signature program if you ask a school system, and that Museums on Main Street would be our signature program if you asked a museum. Now, if you asked all three of them in the room to come up with an answer, I would hope that they would maybe say our grants program because it touches all of them. How's that for not picking a favorite? So when are you launching your campaign? <laughs> How political. What a great politically correct answer there. <laughs> okay, you mentioned you get a lot of money from the state. I mean, how can people get involved with Maryland Humanities? I mean, there's a number of ways. Again, right? Like it's so – we have such a great arrangement of programming. It's really hard to say. But I would say um, if you're someone who loves to read – um, getting involved in the One Maryland, One Book program is, is great because you're reading a book that's being read across the state and you can enter into conversations and into programming with people all over the state around the same book. I love that. I think that's great. Um, if you are the person who runs a nonprofit that needs 
funding, check out our grants program. Um, that would that would be the place to start, right? And if you're someone who's a teacher, then Maryland History Day. Um, I'll bring it bring it to your school if it's not already there. One Maryland, one book. Now, where I mean, where is the best way to get involved in that locally? Is that through mdhumanities.org or would it be your local library or, you know, same with museums on Main Street? I mean, I, I mean, there's probably thousands of volunteers that help humanities in Maryland move. Uh, I don't think that you – I'm guessing you don't have thousands of volunteers up in your offices in Baltimore making Maryland humanities move. No, no, we don't, especially not now. Um, so I would say for One Maryland, One Book, your entry point right now, like if you're listening to this in January, February 2021, is go to our um, website, uh, look up One Maryland, One Book, and take a look at the books that are in our top 10. I think that's really interesting to take a look at personally as someone who likes to read when I, you know, am not managing screaming children. And I would say, uh, look at that list. I think we have a voting mechanism, and I might get something thrown at my head for not knowing this. Um, but I think you'll be able to to vote at some point on which book should be one Maryland, one book. And then getting ready for that fall discussion series. And so reading the book. You know, if you don't have a book club, grabbing your best friend and saying, hey, read this book with me, and then we can attend something in the fall. Um, that's a, a great way. And it would be through... Our website would list it as well as your local library will probably have a discussion. If not your specific branch, another branch within your your county's library system. And for museums on Main Street, it's really a matter of when it comes to your community because it's usually a museum or a partner that brings it to the community. And then you can actually visit a Smithsonian-level exhibit, which is paired with a local exhibit that the local partner creates but for this year specifically, we have a special initiative through the Voices and Votes Electoral Engagement Program, um, where uh, this year's exhibit is all about civic engagement, which is great. It's great timing. And they will be collecting oral histories from people in the communities uh, where the exhibit will be. I believe the age range is 18 to 24, so new voters. And I think those are all um, ways that you can kind of enter into what's happening with the Museums on Main Street program. And that can all be accessed via our website to direct you to the local partners. Oh, that's great. Well, you said Voices and Votes Electoral Engagement Project. Now that is – and the oral histories, that's a new voter just talking about their experience and their thoughts on the electoral process? Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it is exactly that. That's exactly what it is. It's, um, it's kind of a, a two part thing. One is that we have the traveling exhibit from the Smithsonian and that's something we do. Um, you know, we have a couple year cycle, but it's an ongoing thing. It's a different exhibit each time this year. It happens to be voices and votes. In addition to that, we receive special funding. If you've heard of the Mellon foundation, they gave funding to the Federation of state humanities councils, which is one of our, um, organizations that we work with because we are the State Humanities Council for Maryland, and they regranted the money to us. Wow. <laughs> so it's kind of like trickle down. So we got $50,000 um, right around the election. We found out about it, and it's to create programming between November and March, so November 2020 to March 2021. And so part of that money is going towards the Oral History Project. Another chunk of money for that is going towards a special um, author uh, event, which will be run by our Maryland Center for the Book within Maryland Humanities. And that will be kind of a capstone speaker. 
I don't think I'm allowed to release who we think it's going to be, but I'm very, very, very excited. It when when my program officer told me, I literally screamed because I was so excited about who we're going to have. <laughs> I've got everybody telling me, "Oh, I I wish I could tell you, but I can't just yet." You're like you're like the third person today, so it's uh. I mean that Maryland Voices Story Collection. That sounds like sounds like an, a really neat thing. I know that the Annapolis Maritime Museum is doing a certain a, a similar thing, and they're having stories told of the old watermen in in Annapolis and the the history of the Chesapeake Bay, and they're getting families of you know the descendants of them to write down what they know of like their family history and and it's it's really neat to put it together and to really bring history alive and i think that's just a such a fabulous idea that you guys have are doing yeah i think oral histories having run a small history organization i i always shied away from oral histories because i felt like there was so many legal parameters for doing them and I just wanted to like sit and talk with someone with a microphone and like record them. And that just felt like that was not the process that was approved. So I'm excited to see us working with, we're working with a partner, the Peel Center, to do these oral histories with these smaller organizations. So to give, to help, help them with that capacity, I think is really important. I, I love it actually. And to do it with 18 to 24 year olds, because normally when you hear about oral histories, it's older audiences um, who it's like, let's make sure we, we talk to them before it's too late, which I think is important. But we don't really hear people early on in their lives and their experiences often. It'll be a, a fascinating look back in you know 30 or 40 years. What was I thinking in 2020 yeah. when I when I <laughs> when I when I cast my vote? It'll be it'll be absolutely very fascinating. And I agree with you. I think that you see a lot of. Uh, the older folks with the history, and I know my father passed away a couple of years ago, and he was a World War II vet, never talked about it for most of his life. But toward somehow, some reason, toward the very end of his life, he decided to get all chatty about it. And unfortunately, before I was able to get down there with a recorder and a microphone uh, to sit down, and he agreed to it to tell me about some of the, the war stories, if you will, from the South Pacific. He just uh, he ultimately passed away. So I do have a real regret on that. And I mean, it would have been a fascinating tale to listen to. I am so looking forward to you know checking that out when that's finally done. Um, I, I notice a big green button on the website says donate. I mean, you obviously take oh. direct donations, and any nonprofit does. And uh, you guys certainly are well deserving of it. All of the nonprofits are. I wish I was uh, Bill Gates or somebody that was able to turn around and. Well, actually, no. He, he, he's like he's like the he's like the poor stepchild anymore next to uh, Bezos and Musk. I guess <laughs> you do take direct donations. Yes, we do. Yep, hundred <laughs> percent. And how how much how how much is your public donation? I mean, versus like your state funding versus downward grants that you're getting from federation, et cetera. Um, so it's not it's not as large a portion as we would hope. Um, and the reason is that we do have um, pretty standard funding um, at the federal level, which I think is important. But I will say it also comes with. A lot of, I don't want to say strings attached because that has negative connotations, but um, there are um, there are frameworks in place of how you can spend that money. And so what, what private funding does is it allows us to be more nimble. It allows us to make changes um, in ways that we think will benefit our specific audience in Maryland um, that may not yet be approved um, at the federal level. And so, for, for example... Um, uh, one change that we were able to make, and this wasn't specifically with private funding, but with our 
granting to organizations. The fact that we were able to get state money means that we can think now about whether or not we want to provide operating grants. So currently our um, grants program only allows for programmatic grants, but um, with the state funding, we are able to think, and we are thinking through this now, about providing operating grants to smaller nonprofits. So that's kind of uh, I know this is like a very meta conversation unless you're in nonprofits, but I can, I think, easily break it down to say that most most funding is programmatic, which means you have to go create a program. We will not pay you um, and your staff to create that program, but we will pay for the supplies of the program. Okay. And so the shift to allowing operating means we are paying for you and you go do the good work and we have faith that you're going to do it. Um, but we're going to make sure first that your people are paid. And so I think that um, in the era of uh, Facebook, and I always see those posts about, um, you know, overhead costs of nonprofits being vilified, um, I would push back uh, because we are employees. Um, and uh, if you don't want to pay the employees to do the work, then the work can't be done. And so um, providing that capacity for nonprofits is really important. And I think most people who work in nonprofits understand that. And I'm happy that we're able, we have the flexibility now to even consider it at Maryland Humanities. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we all, we all need to eat and we all need to make, you know, make a buck. And I mean, I know the, a lot of the vilification comes from some of the huge nonprofits where they, you know, have so little money going to programs it's, it's just a matter of scale as well. I mean, you know, you look at, we'll say, I, I don't want to pick on the American Cancer Society because I don't know what their specific things are, but, you know, they have a huge, broad, broad reach and just a little tiny program that they may come up with has a huge impact. Uh, yes, but they do also need to have the, uh, you know, the overhead support to be able to run the organization as well. Mm-hmm. And and when you mentioned, okay, so you did go over the programmatic and the um, operational grants. So, I mean, does now an operational grant, would that cover just expenses of operating, you know, electric rent type yeah. thing. If, if, I mean, obviously we're living in different times right now and probably mm-hmm. that wouldn't be the ideal intent of it five years ago, I would imagine. But uh, today it's, you know, we realize the importance of these small nonprofits, these small museums and these small programs that you come to your schools and to your libraries and to little pop-up shops across the state that need to continue because that's where we go. Yeah, I mean, that's a hope. So operational grants are not a thing that we do yet, but they're something that we're thinking about and we may be planning for. Um, and that would be the idea. And I think it's always easy to think of um, larger nonprofits, like you've mentioned. And I don't have a lot of experience, honestly, with really large nonprofits. I've come from the small side of things. So I, I, I encourage people to think of, you know, their local food pantry, their local um friends group of their library that gives out books and their local museum. And uh, we are almost all running on, on fumes and running on the smallest budgets that we possibly can. So any type of operating support we can give to um, uh, important community partners like that, I think is a good thing. Without a doubt. Well, I'll tell you, I don't know whether you're familiar with the, um, in Annapolis here, the art and public places commission by the city of Annapolis. Art in public places, so it's public art where you could actually walk up to it and see it's mural statues, um, you know, paintings, and etc. And they've come up with a with a book. And and again, I don't know uh, if you were initially involved with the funding of it, but it's it's a wonderful book, and it's about 
I don't know, maybe a quarter inch thick and it's a, a great walking guide through the city to find all the different art and what the muralists have done and the statues, what they mean, what their history and everything else is. And I think, again, you talk about that was something I know that they went out and said, hey, you know, can you give $10 here, $100 there and to produce it? But it's just such a great resource. And again, you don't realize where and how far reaching the humanities are. When you look here, and, and and again, the Maryland humanities may not be involved with all of them, but I mean, you take a look at you know the Harriet Harriet Tubman. You've got the uh, you said the Laurel, the museum in Laurel. Uh, you've got all mm-hmm. these little gems hidden across Maryland that uh, you know really are part of what brings Maryland to be the great place that it is. I I agree. And while we're talking about Annapolis, I'm going to plug my uh, two favorite things in your area, if that's okay. The Banneker Um, Douglas Museum. The Banneker Douglas Museum. Um, My colleague and now a board member for Maryland Humanities, uh, Chanel Compton, is wonderful and is doing a great job there as their director. Um, And their uh, Black Vote Mural Project and the Associated Symposium that went with that, we supported it. And it was it was an example, a shining example of what Chanel can do um, and what her leadership brings to museums. So I have to plug that. And I'll also say I have some buddies that run um, uh, Historic London Town, which is a little bit outside, but is is a, a favorite place of mine to bring my daughter and just let her loose um, on the grounds. And their programming is always interesting when they're able to do it in person. So those are my, my two plugs for over your way. And they're, they're outstanding plugs. I mean, London town has the fantastic gardens when they're in bloom, just some unique mm-hmm. uh, native plants and the, the breadth of knowledge that the, the staff has there is beyond compare. And, and Banneker Douglas museum is really outstanding too. And, and for those that aren't aware of that, that is, I'm going to mess up the street, but I think it's on South street. Um, but it's right across from the county courthouse, and it's half building and half of an old church. And mm-hmm. they've got a great ongoing program right now. And I know a friend of mine, Commissel uh, Brown, has uh, contributed a, a banner that went in into that. And we spoke with the executive director during the Leadership Anne Arundel programming that we had last month where we studied the arts. It's a great museum. I don't want to say hidden because it's not very hidden, but if you haven't <laughs> been there – Definitely go check that out. The other one I would say would be when they open up again would be the Mitchell Gallery at St. John's College, which is a uh, full-blown, just a real great art gallery with different exhibits that come in periodically. So I've not been there, so I will have to put it on my list. Actually, yeah, right now, right now they're a little bit, a uh, little bit virtual, but they uh, mm-hmm. and they're wonderful. They've had some great stuff. They get some great stuff on loan from some wonderful museums, and it's uh, it's a it's a lot of fun. I, I it's Again, that that's more of a hidden gem than others because it's in the middle of a campus on a on a college campus and it's sort of tucked away, but it's uh, definitely worth it there. I was just going to say, I think you're on to something, and um, I I'm in Prince George's County. I'm in Laurel. That's where I live, and I would say that one of the hidden gems statewide are these college galleries. You know, I've I've been to quite a few exhibits at um, both College Park and UMBC uh, that you know, I blow my socks off, right? <laughs> to use that phrase, yeah. are just really strong, well-developed exhibits that really complement the local exhibits I see at small museums. And if you're not someone who's eager to go on college campuses, because you know, you never know where to park, and you never know what entrance to go into and, and all of that, I would encourage you to find 
one college you feel comfortable going to and visiting their gallery, get yourself comfortable with where to park and their hours and all of that. And it really is a great compliment to all of the local museums we have. I would say the colleges also have a bunch of great, you know, different speaking events. They have some entertainment mm-hmm. that comes in and you usually can get in on some of that. It's not necessarily restricted to the uh, 18 to 21 crowd or 18 to 22 crowd that's living on campus or live, you know, taking classes there for sure. But we're on the phone with Lindsay Baker, who is the executive director of Maryland Humanities. And you can find out more about them at mdhumanities.org. They are based up in Baltimore, but not right now. They're based, I guess, at home. Uh, And hopefully we'll be back into the offices before not too long. Also on your website, I looked and I looked at your, your motto or your mission. And I thought it really summed up as I'm clicking away here as we're talking, it says that Maryland Humanities is a statewide educational nonprofit organization that creates and supports educational experience in the humanities that inspire all Marylanders to, and this is the thing that I thought was good, embrace lifelong learning, exchange ideas openly, and enrich their communities. And I think that uh, in the times that we're living in right now with division and arguing and everything else, the exchange of ideas openly is critical to a good life that we've got here in Maryland. I think that, you know, you can learn, uh, whether it be political, whether it be educational. And I I think that's uh, a wonderful mission for Maryland humanities and for actually for anybody. I agree. (laughs) And that's why I love Maryland humanities. What's what's next? I mean, okay, you you said you've been here since August. And what's next after we get out of COVID and you guys are uh, able to run free and... What, what's next for Maryland Humanities? What's on your on your bucket list? Um, well, not my bucket list yet, but my short-term list is strategic planning. Um, we are due, and we will be starting that in the next month or two. Um, and then uh, we a major initiative that I was really brought on um, with the understanding that this is something that is some I've worked on at every organization I've been a part of. Um, is operationalizing racial equity work. And so what does that mean? That means that we take a really deep look at ourselves and how we function both internally and externally and hold it up to the light and and see um, what changes need to be made to make things more equitable, um, both for our staff, for our board, for our partners, for our grantees. And so that is uh, that is work that will never be done. So I guess it can be on the bucket list, um, but it is work that's, that's being prioritized. And it's been great to see it prioritized by both our staff and our board. Fantastic. Again, Lindsay Baker, thank you very much for your time. I know uh, you had mentioned that you may have a four-year-old bounding into the room any moment. So I will, <laughs> yeah. I will let you uh, go take care of that. And I'll say better you than me. I've done my time and my children are flown and grown. So, uh, but four is a wonderful age and I uh, appreciate your time. I appreciate everything you've done with Maryland Humanities. I look forward to hearing more and uh, seeing more money flowing to all these great organizations throughout the, uh, throughout the state. I think it's just, uh, we need, we need to involve ourselves a little bit more with that. And I think uh, we'll all be much better for it. Great. Thank you so much for having me. This was A fun conversation. I definitely am I'm glad that we were able to chat. Cool. Let's do it again. Yes, for sure. This has been a bonus podcast from Ion Annapolis. Please visit us at ionanapolis.net. Follow us on Facebook at All Annapolis and on Twitter at Ion Annapolis. 
And if you haven't subscribed to the Daily News Brief podcast, go for it. And all of your local news will be delivered to your phone, tablet, or smart device by 6 a.m. every Monday through Friday.